Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The most daring development in early 20th century modern art was the adoption of abstraction, the decision to make paintings that were not pictures of the visible world, but just paintings. Abstraction elicited both excitement and anxiety. Painters looked to new sources for the kind of structure that direct observation had once provided. Music, the logic of geometry, the forces of emotion and spirituality, the material facts of paint and canvas, and scientific developments that revealed new ways to see the world, from X-rays to Einstein's theory of special relativity. Artists from several different countries hoped that abstraction might become a lingua franca, transcending cultural differences. While that did not quite happen, the energies unleashed by abstraction were far-reaching, as works by Vasily Kandinsky, Piet Mondrian, and Konstantin Brancusi confirm. Abstraction was truly the art of the future. As part of the series Celebrating the East Building, 20th Century Art, senior lecturer David Garroff explores the birth of abstraction in early 20th century art. This lecture was presented on August 9th, 2018 at the National Gallery of Art. So today we um, have a lecture, Abstraction and Purity, and the reason I titled it Abstraction and Purity is because you know we have been going through the East Building gallery by gallery, room by room, but in this case, I've conflated two rooms. Uh, we have two rooms in the upper level. Um, <clears throat> one is titled by the wall plaque, which I will proudly show you in a second. Um, one is titled Purity. And then another room is titled The Birth of Abstraction. So those two rooms could work together. Uh, so for the sake of time and whatnot, I've combined the works and the themes and the concepts in those two rooms I've combined them for this lecture. This is one of the rooms, of course. This is the Purity Room that features works by Brancusi, Leger, uh, and Mondrian. We'll be coming back to that in a second. So here we are. We're on the upper level now. So we've gone ground, ground level, mezzanine. And now we're up on the, ground le on the uh, upper level. So here's what we're talking about. If you go down below that, where the mother well is, that's the concourse. You enter here, this is the ground level. Then you go to the mezzanine, which we've been on, and now we're up here. Uh, so now we're on the upper level, and you can enter through different portals. But this is the time I, I said to you a couple of lectures ago that eventually I'm going to talk about staircases. Um, so, um, and because we have been talking about changes in the, the building during this three-year renovation, and one of them does affect staircases, how one negotiates the East Building now. When Pei originally designed the building, <clears throat> he had three spiral staircases. One we still have, which is this one. That's the same staircase, just two photos. Uh, this is the one that still today takes you up to the Tower Gallery, where we have changing exhibitions. Uh, and Truitt is currently up there. Um, so that hasn't changed. That staircase remains. But in order to change the uh, logistics of the building, it was necessary to get rid of the other two spiral staircases. Now, Pei was still alive. He's still alive. He's 100. Uh, he had assigned one of his best architects, Perry Chin, to sort of oversee this. So, you know, I think we did say, you know, do you mind if we 
destroy those two staircases. Uh, maybe they took them somewhere, I don't know. Um, and he was okay with that. Um, so now we have the remaining pay staircase, and these are, this is the new staircase. There are two of them. And the reasons these were added to the building was, in fact, a very functional, practical reason. And that is to say, in the original, remember, the building opened in 1978. We're celebrating the 40th anniversary. In 1978, different building codes and things were not exactly what they are today. And in, if you had been in this building prior to its renovation, there was no way you could evacuate this building on one staircase from the very top all the way to the bottom you would have to go down one level. You might take a spiral staircase and then be on the mezzanine, and then you'd have to look around and figure, OK, where do I go from here to get downstairs if I can't use the elevator? And of course, in an emergency, that's not good. Uh, to each time you get to a level, figuring out, OK, now where do I go? So it was decided that there had to be staircases that went unbroken from the very tower all the way to the ground level, so that's why these staircases were created. So here is, and they're like works of art themselves. They're just gorgeous. It's not, I always, when I take people up to the tower, I always have them look over unless they have vertigo. Uh, some people won't look over because it's really dramatic, uh, the way it goes down. So these are the new staircases. Now, so we still have the one spiral staircase. That's where it always was which is for the tower gallery. And then these are the new staircases that go unbroken. The same quarries were used. We reopened the same quarries for all the stone from the original 78 building. This is looking the other way, down below up. So uh, I think these staircases kind of qualify as abstraction purity. So I thought this was a good place to just mention that. But now we're going to get into the, uh, the collection. Uh, and this is the room, as I mentioned. As I said to you before, there were certain, you know, you you, everything doesn't fit always neatly into a little box. And so when you're trying to create a space that has clear definitions and demarcations, it doesn't always work that way. Uh, and it depends, of course, on what we have in our collection, et cetera. Remember when I said when you're in our data section, it's, it's called data and beyond because there's much more beyond data than there is of data uh, in, that, in that part. And here, what uh, Harry Cooper, our curator of 20th century art, was trying to do was to bring together artists whose um, emphasis was on certainly abstraction. But beyond abstraction, it was on this concept of a kind of transcendental, spiritual, theoretical uh, purity. And certainly, Brancusi, Mondrian, and Leger all qualify. There are some other people here. Uh, Harry wrote his dissertation on Mondrian, so he's he's pretty hepped up about Mondrian. Um, so um, that's how this room. And you notice, of course, it was great because he said purity <laughs> with a question mark, as if to say, you know, I don't know. Not all of you may agree with this, but it it works. Okay. So here's the room. Uh, this is looking towards the surrealism data room back here. But this is the room we're talking about, featuring the works of those three artists. I'm going to start with uh, Brancusi, because he's among the greatest artists of the 20th century, certainly among the greatest sculptors. So here's a self-portrait of Brancusi. He took that with a camera that had an automatic shutter. 
1933. This is a, a portrait of Brancusi by Man Ray uh, from 1930. Uh, I like the, the photograph on the left because you know when you take your first photography class, the one thing they always tell you is when you're shooting somebody, make sure nothing's coming out of their heads. <laughs> you know, uh, So like move them over so the tree isn't coming out of their head or something. But I think this is intentional. Uh, I think that's the endless column here. This is the model for the endless column. And, and I think what Brancusi, this is my take on it. Um, Brancusi wanted to know he's got so many ideas, they're popping right out of his head. Uh, so I think this is kind of intentional. He's thinking about the endless column. Now, Brancusi is fascinating. Uh, I mean, he's one of the greats. And the more you read and study Brancusi, the more admiration you have. Um, of course, he's from Romania. And he literally sort of walks to Paris from Romania. He's poor, and he wants to uh, go to where things are happening. And um, he has a very peasant, simple kind of approach to life and approach to sculpture and even approach to tools. I mean, you know, some artists use very sophisticated tools. Brancusi uses the saw, the ax, and the hammer. And they're not small. <laughs> uh, they're big, cleaving, pounding tools. Um, so you see him sawing here. This is one of his hammers. Um, here, working with an ax. And he's working on these big timbers. This is in part part of the, of the um, working on the, the uh, wooden version of the endless column. But um, all of the pedestals that you see when Bracuzzi's sculptures are on pedestals, they're on wooden pedestals. He makes all those. And he basically makes them by chopping wood with an ax and then kind of roughly shaping them. So that's something to keep in mind. He's certainly an artist who qualifies as a, as a purist with a small p, because there is a movement called purism. He's not part of that. but with a small p, because he takes very simple shapes, essential shapes, the oval, the triangle, the sphere, and then he, he deals with specifically refined essence qualities, soaring, flight, balance, harmony. How do you actually portray these things in a very simple, direct uh, way? And uh, even things something like grace. How do we show grace in sculpture? Uh, elegance. Um, so these are the things. He's got a very Eastern philosophy and approach to things, really, in, in that particular way. So some of his sculptures look very simple, but th they require a lot of time and effort and thought, um, especially thought, meditation. This is early Brancusi that you don't see very often. This is from 1906, 1907. These are two busts of a child. These are, this is the same one, just two different views. And then there's this one here. This is Torment 1 and Torment 2 from 6-7. Um, you look at this, of course, and you see the date, 1906-1907, and of course you realize that everybody who's going to be a sculptor in Paris at the turn of the century uh, has to confront Rodin. So um, when Brancusi arrives in Paris, Rodin, as I've, and I've said this a million times, those of you who've heard me lecture, uh, at the turn of the century, in the year 1900, the most famous artist in the world, in the world, and I'm not saying the most famous sculptor, I'm saying the most famous artist in the world was Auguste Rodin. So if you were a young sculptor coming to Paris, and uh, Rodin does not die until 1917, 
you had to deal with Rodin. <clears throat> and so, as I've said to you before, you could not be neutral. So if somebody asked you, so what do you think of Rodin? You know, you would not say, you know, I've never really thought of the guy. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't really come up on my radar screen. Uh, you would either say, Rodin? Oh my god, he's God. And, and he's the greatest sculptor since Michelangelo, and I would love to work with this guy if I could be his apprentice or assistant. Or you would say, Rodin. Yes, he was great, but his time has passed. And he's a 19th century sculptor, and 20th century sculptor has to go in a different direction. And much of what Rodin was about, touch, the skin of the sculpture, the subject matter, the heroism, all of that is over with now. We have to move into the 20th century. So Brancusi comes to Romania, and he does his early work like this and others. Is very much, you have to deal with Rodin. This is later like the abstract expressionists, well, not just the abstract expressionists, but many painters. You have to deal with Picasso. You, you can't ignore him. So what a lot of artists do, you got to kill him. <laughs> uh, it's like you got to kill your father if you're going to be liberated. So artists have to go after Picasso. I got to get this guy out of my system. And the same with, with Rodin. So this work owes a lot to Rodin. It's, it has a kind of, first of all, deals with emotion and feeling. It's a cast bronze work. It has this beautiful kind of surface and all of that. Um, there's a slight difference here. The one on the left is a little bit lower. It shows the arm coming across uh, the, the, the folded arm coming just below the breast. The other one is a little more truncated. In any case, this is pretty typical of Brancusi kind of channeling um, Rodin. The other sculptor who was prevalent and important at this time was the, the German sculptor Wilhelm Lembruck. So that's Lembruck on the right, the kneeling woman from 1911. And this is Brancusi's work on the left called The Prayer from 1907, which was a work commissioned um, in Romania, actually. It was a work for a um, grave monument in, in Romania for a cemetery. But it owes, Lembruck was very important at this time as well. And so Lembruck and Rodin certainly affect uh, Brancusi early in his arrival in in Paris. One of the things that's debated at this time, and it'll become more and more important as we get into the 20th century, especially in sculpture, is does the human figure have anything left in it to say? Haven't we exhausted the human figure as a subject matter in art? Um, shouldn't we move beyond that? What more can you say about the human figure that hasn't been said going back to the Greeks? Uh, so some artists will, will accept, they'll say, yes, indeed, let's move beyond that towards more abstraction, et cetera. Other artists will say, no, it still is a very potent vessel for conveying <laughs> ideas and emotions. So that's a debate at this time that Modigliani, I'm not Modigliani, but that's, I'm thinking Modigliani because that's one of the first people Brancusi meets when he arrives. Um, that is a discussion, the, the uh, continuing relevance or irrelevance of the human figure in art. And it plays out in sculpture a lot. So Brancusi meets Lembrook, he meets Modigliani, Archipenko, uh, Jacques Lipschitz is there at the time. Uh, and he becomes part of this circle that was mainly in Montparnasse. He looks to Rodin. This is a work called Sleep from 1908. Rodin was instrumental in dealing with this, what we call an Italian, going back to Michelangelo, the non finito look 
that a work looked like it wasn't finished, like a head was emerging still from the stone. And notice here, Brancusi could cast, he could model uh, clay, cast bronze, and also carve, carve stone or model, uh, marble. This is a work today that's in Romania. So there's this encounter with, <clears throat> with Rodin. So when Brancusi arrives, he, he makes a certain splash and um, <clears throat> Rodin comes, he comes to Rodin's attention. And Rodin, looking at some of this early stuff, especially stuff that looks like Rodin's own work, um, he says, wow, you know, you're, you're talented. Why don't you come work with me? Come into my studio and be my assistant. Uh, and Brancusi says, no, uh, you know, thanks, I'm flattered but no. Um, and then he utters the famous quote when people then ask Brancusi, he, he later says, you know, Rodin asked me to become his assistant. I said no, and they're all, oh my God, what do you mean? This guy's so famous and you should work with him. And Brancusi said, <clears throat> the, uh, a little acorn could not grow under the shade of a huge oak tree. So he's young, but he's smart enough and mature enough to know that if I work with this guy, I'm young, he's the most famous artist in the world, I'm never gonna find my own voice. Uh, I'm gonna just be so overladen by Rodin that probably I would become a second-rate Rodin. Um, so, and that's not what I wanna be. So he says no. Now other sculptors did just the opposite. Etienne Bordel, Bordel was a sculptor who idolized Rodin. Same thing, Rodin says, come be my assistant. Bordel is flattered. He spends the rest of his career, basically, at least a good chunk of it, working for Rodin. And what is Bordel today? With all due respect, uh, he's kind of a second-rate Rodin because uh, uh, he follows Rodin's principles pretty closely. Brancusi was smart. He's young, but he was smart to know that that wouldn't be the case. I give the parallel analogy always in music, <clears throat> and that is with George Gershwin. When George Gershwin goes to Paris, the, the, the composer he's totally enthralled with is Maurice Ravel, and he wants to study with Ravel. And he goes to Ravel and says, gee, you know, could you take me on as a student? I would love to study with you. And um, Ravel already, already recognized that Gershwin had written a body of work that was really his own voice and was new. And he said to um, Gershwin, he said, why do you want to study with me? If you study with me, you'll become a second-rate Ravel. You're already a first-rate Gershwin. Uh, and then he wouldn't take him on as a student. Uh, so that's a similar situation here. Uh, Brancusi will find his own voice, and in so doing, he'll change the nature of 20th century sculpture. And that will be, with just a couple of exceptions, a rejection of Rodin. Um, so here is just a couple of, again, another installation shot here of how we've installed things. So one of the things Brancusi does is he's concerned with abstraction, with the essence of things. And so when you're concerned with abstraction and essence, you very often work in a serial form. You'll do a number of things in the same sequence of the same subject, and you'll keep pushing the ideas. Can I make it more abstract? Can I keep it, you know, this kind of thing. We see this with Matisse, the back series, right? Um, the Jeanette series, those heads, where he just keeps moving more and more towards abstraction. This is true for Brancusi in spades. 
almost every work by Brancusi is part of a series, and he just pushes them along. So here on the left, the work we have at the gallery is the Maestra, uh, 1911. Uh, this is a bird form. This is our, the one that we have here. There are seven versions of this. So there are seven different versions of the Maestra. The work on the right is not in our collection, but it's the next step in his treatment of the bird form. This is called the Golden Bird from 1919 to 20. There are four versions of that. The one you're looking at on the screen is in Chicago, the Art Institute. The Maestra is very important because it's the first sculpture by Brancusi to begin to deal with the abstracted form of a bird. And this bird, Maestra, is a Romanian bird of folktale and legend. It's, uh, it's known as the Passerea Maestra, so it's a, it's a fa very famous bird, which means master bird in Romanian fairy tale and folk tale. It was famous for its plumage and for its, um, for its song. But probably that subject of the Romanian bird was fusing here with the Russian uh, bird, which is the bird, of course, of the, um, of the ballet russe and of Russian folklore, the firebird. Because at the time that Brancusi was working on this Romanian legendary bird, the ballet russe was mounting their production of the firebird with the music by Stravinsky which is a comparable Russian version of this bird. So they're two mythic birds. And certainly Brancusi knew that Russian version. The um, Firebird premiered in the opera, the, the Paris Opera in um, June 25th, 1910. So it's right at this time. So there was a lot of buzz about the Firebird and it may have affected this choice here. So the Maestra is, 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 is wonderful. It's perched on its little base here. It's a golden color, its breast is swelling because it's trying to sing. Its beak is just open a little bit. Uh, in Brancusi, you've got to look carefully because every little nuance is telling you something about how he's thinking. So his mouth is just kind of opening as if he's ready to sing. It's very subtle. Uh, each eye is a little bit different. Uh, the way he turns the neck, uh, the turn of the head uh, is very subtle. It's very highly polished. It's a reflective surface. That surface is a total rejection of Rodin. Um, that's one of the first things he rejects, is Rodin's tactile working in clay and the sense of the artist's touch and all of that is gone uh, here. This is a total rejection of Rodin in terms of the surface, even though it's a bronze. Uh, he talks about what he, it sits then on a little base and then it sits on a larger pedestal. All of those are created by Brancusi. So he's working from this wooden pedestal to this little marble cube to the bronze uh, sculpture. And that works, of course, vertically. And that is related to something we're going to spend a little time talking about today, and that is theosophy. Uh, theosophical thought about aspiration and moving from the earthly to the spiritual realm in this sort of vertical um, realm and moving from base materials, wood, to more exalted materials, bronze, that idea. But I'll come back to that. So talking about the Maestra, what he was trying to do, he said about the pose, Brancusi said, quote, I wanted to show the Maestra as raising its head, but without putting any implications of pride, haughtiness, or defiance into this gesture. 
That was the difficult problem, and it is only after much hard work that I managed to incorporate this gesture into the motion of flight. So he keeps talking about what was the obsessive search here as what he called, quote, the essence of the work, essence. What can I get down to that's the bare minimum that will still express what it is I want to, to say? And then that journey continues with the golden bird. Uh, so this is, the, this is like, uh, I don't know, the grandfather, the father. And then we get to the bird in space, and that'll be the sort of where he's, where he's sort of heading. In 1926, again, Brancusi says, quote, in art, one does not aim for simplicity. One achieves it unintentionally as one gets closer to the real meaning of things. So there's this constant kind of uh, jettisoning of the non-essential. So here's the, the two golden birds that way, the, I'm sorry, the two birds in space that way. Here's the maestra here. And we have a bronze, this is actually brass, not bronze, and marble versions of the bird in space. So here they are. On the left is the marble from 1925. On the right is the, it's actually brass because of the composition of the tin and uh, copper. It's, so technically it's not bronze, it's brass. In any case, that's 1927. This is where all those birds are heading. The maestra, the golden bird, which are series, right? Seven, four. He's already done 11 versions of the bird. And then he's heading, uh, he's heading here. The first, when people saw this, of course, they said either positively or negatively, it, it was abstract. And that really used to tick Brancusi off, actually. So he said, quote, I do not sculpt birds, but flights. There are those idiots who define my work as abstract. Yet what they call abstract is what is most realistic. What is real is not the appearance, but the idea, the essence of things. So this is not even supposed to be a bird so much as it's supposed to be flight uh, or this sort of form piercing space in a certain way. There are 16 versions of this sculpture. So this has the greatest number within its series. It's the purest expression of his beliefs and his aesthetic, his philosophy. It's this culmination of all these years of thinking about birds. He was obsessed with birds, with flight, etc. cetera. Um, and this is the sculpture that, as you probably know, in October 1926, uh, Brancusi was preparing for an exhibition in New York City at the Brumer Gallery. And he was sending works from Paris. He was in Paris, but he was sending works to New York for the exhibition. And his agent in New York, uh, who was kind of overseeing the shipments was Marcel Duchamp. So Duchamp was in New York receiving everything to make sure it got where it needed to go for the exhibition. Um, and uh, when the customs, when the, this work arrived at customs, uh, it was all crated up, um, they opened it and they saw, along with things like the Maestra and other bronze weird things, uh, they saw all these weird shapes and materials and um, they refused to allow it to enter the country under the rubric of art. Um, if it, the law said that works of art were duty-free. You, you could bring it, bring it into the country without paying duty if it was a work of art. If it was anything else, you had to pay duty. So in, instead of allowing it in as a work of art, they imposed the standard tariff for what was manufactured objects in metal. And that was a 40% of the sale price. Now, at, at that time, 
that would have been $240 in 1926, which today would be about $3,000. So that was what they imposed as the tariff. Um, this is so timely. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> somebody's going to suffer. <laughs> uh, so Duchamp was mortified. And Edward Steichen, who was installing that exhibition, helping with that, he was mortified. Uh, Mrs. Whitney was mortified uh, by this, and she was friends with Duchamp. So they had to release the work, because it was supposed to be in this exhibition. They couldn't just quarantine it. So they released it. So they gave it, they released it under the title of, or under the category of kitchen utensils and surgical supplies. <laughs> That was the closest they could get, uh, as close as they could get. It was, uh, the show was, went on. Um, so the exhibition in New York took place, and then it, actually that show traveled to Chicago. The government stuck, stuck by its decision. Uh, it didn't alter uh, its decision. And this is when Mrs. Uh, Whitney said to Duchamp and said to Brancu wrote back to Brancusi, you know, this would be a good kind of a test case. Uh, and I'd be willing to pay for the lawyers to, to test this in court, whether this is art or what's not art, should it be, you know, all of that. And so uh, that's what happened. And this led to the very famous Brancusi versus the United States, which is one of the most famous art trials in American art history that took place in October of 1927. There are certain trials you always study in school. Whistler Ruskin, one of the big ones. <laughs> Brancusi versus the United States, another biggie. Richard Serra with a tilted arc, that's a biggie. Richard Serra, where one of his works collapses and kills a guy, that's a biggie. <laughs> uh, and he sued, that's a biggie. Um, the Rothko estate, that one is a biggie. Um, altering the surfaces of David Smith's sculptures, uh, that, was a, that was a trial, that was a hearing, that's a biggie. So all of these are big art trials. So here we have a photograph of Marcel Duchamp, Brancusi, Duchamp, Brancusi, Tristan Zara, the Dada guy, what is a little monocle, and that's uh, peeking out as Man Ray in Paris in 1921. And this is Edward Steichen, the American photographer, self-portrait with camera from 1917. He would eventually purchase the burden space. Uh, he bought it out of the exhibition. Then he photographed it in 1927. Um, so in an interview, uh, Brancusi talking about uh, this, sort of all this fuss, uh, he said something, he said, if one has, quote, if one has reproduced nature realistically, it is not creation. An artist must create. A reproduction of a horse in marble or bronze is a corpse of a horse. There is something more to a horse than the mere corpse. There is the essence, or, or what do you call it? The spirit, perhaps. So this leads to the famous uh, trial. Uh, I'm going to read to you from the transcript in a, in a minute. This got a lot of press coverage. So this is an article in the New York American, December 25th, 1927, uh, sort of laying out the, some of the controversy. Um, uh, this court case is important in the world of art and art law um, because it's essentially the first case that establishes abstract art as uh, works of art under the law. 
in other words, an artist isn't just trying to pull a fast one. So in a certain way, there were two precedents that come out of this trial. One is the recognize, recognizing the validity of abstract art. And then the other one is recognizing the originality of serial sculpture, that it could change. It wasn't merely being replicated, but it was the work. And it, they were independent works of an original artist who was making changes along uh, the way. So let me read you just a few. I know this is going to get us way off time, but um, I'm not going to read the whole transcript. But uh, uh, it's one of the great trials. And this is, in fact, very similar to the Whistler-Ruskin trial. Because you had the artists who were pro-Whistler and the artists who were anti-Whistler. They were in favor of Ruskin, et cetera. It's very similar. And some of the questions are even the same. So here's the, you have Brancusi. He's the plaintiff. And then you had three attorneys for Brancusi. You don't need to know their names. Three attorneys for the government. They're the defendant. Then you had uh, the judge. His name was Waite, Judge, judge Waite, W-A-I-T-E. And then you had witnesses for and against Brancusi, expert witnesses. So Steichen, Edward Steichen, the photographer, he's for Brancusi. Jacob Epstein, the American, um, English-American, he's for Brancusi. Forbes Watson was the editor of Arts Magazine. They are the three witnesses in favor of Brancusi. The three against Brancusi are Frank uh, Cronenshiel, who was the editor of Vanity Fair. William Henry Fox was, in fact, a curator at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. He thought this was crazy stuff. Um, and Henry McBride was the art critic for the New York Sun. So those are anti-Brancusi. Uh, so you got three and three who have to be then um, cross-examined. So let me, uh, just a few things here. Um, here is Steichen being, he's on the stand, and uh, he's being questioned by the uh, opposition. And so it starts off, uh, what do you call, and this, the sculpture was in the courtroom as Exhibit A, or Exhibit 1. Um, so the a lawyer says, what do you call this? And then Steichen says, I use the same term the sculptor did, wasso, a bird. First they had to go through the whole French thing. You know, uh, wasso, what's wasso? And well, uh, okay, it's a bird. Um, <laughs> And then the lawyer says, what makes you call it a bird? Does it look like a bird to you? And then Steichen says, it does not look like a bird, but I feel that it is a bird. It is characterized by the artist as a bird. Simply because he called it a bird, does that make it a bird to you? Uh, <laughs> this is actually the judge who's doing the questioning. Yes, Your Honor. If you would see it on the street, <laughs> you'd never, you would never think of calling it a bird, would you? If you saw it in the forest, you would not take a shot at it. Um, like if you were hunting birds, you would let this one go. And then Steichen says, no, Your Honor. Um, and then he says, if you saw it anywhere, had never heard anyone call it a bird, you would not call it a bird. <laughs> and then Steichen says, uh, no, sir. OK, so we got that. And then we go through. Uh, there has to be all this discussion about what it means to work in bronze and replication and all of that. Um, let me just pick out a few. Epstein is good when he's called. Um, so here's uh, Steich. Actually, this is Steichen again, um, because they have to talk about the process. Uh, and Steichen has to explain how a bronze sculpture is, is, is made. And here's the questioning of Mr. Mr. Uh, uh, Aitken. Aitken. Have you ever heard of Mr. Brancusi? Uh, this guy's a sculptor, by the way. Uh, yes, replied the sculptor. 
Uh, how long is it since you have heard of him in connection with art? Uh, I haven't heard, I haven't read of him for a number of years. Uh, where have you read of him? In art publications, uh, in books, uh, art publications. Uh, tell us just how many years have you heard of Mr. Brancusi as an artist? Mm, perhaps five years. But you know, as a matter of fact, Mr. Atkin, that Mr. Brancusi has done works of art for over 25 years, do you not? Uh, how many works of art made by Mr. Brancusi have you seen? Uh, I haven't seen any. Um, you have never seen any works by Brancusi? Uh, you said works of art. I have not. Uh, have you seen any of his works? I have seen works like that, he points to the bird in space, but I haven't seen any works of art. In other words, you do not regard them as works of art. I do not. Uh, so that's the other side of the coin. Um, <laughs> goes on. Uh, this is good. This is when Steichen is on. He's back on the. Um, this is the lawyer again against Brancusi. Uh, All breasts of birds are more or less rounded. And this is uh, Steichen testifying. Yes. Uh, any rounded piece of bronze then would represent a bird? Uh, that I cannot say. Looks more like the keel of a boat. Um, if it were lying down, Ep Epstein agrees and a little like the crescent of a new moon. Uh, yes, Epstein says. Um, if Mr. Brancusi called this a fish, um, uh, it would be then to you a fish? If he called it a fish, I would call it a fish. Um, if he called it a tiger, uh, it would change your mind to a tiger? Uh, no. And then the, the lawyer goes on to, again, ask about his, his reputation as an artist. And Steichen says he's a great artist, a great sculptor. Uh, everybody says so, et cetera. So this goes on. Um, then they say to Steichen and another, did you buy this? Uh, I bought that, yes, this is Steichen. For what purpose? <laughs> because I considered it a work of art like to put it in my home. If somebody came to buy, would you sell it? No. Do you sell other works of art? My own works, yes. But you bought this for your own private collection because of the fact that you were a close personal friend of Mr. Brancusi and liked his work? No, not because I was a close personal friend, but because I liked the work. But he is a personal friend. <laughs> 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 no personal element in it whatsoever. That did not enter at all into your thinking, not at all, says, says Steichen. Um, so what is the judge finally, I, I mean, I can't take up more time. What's the final verdict? The verdict is in favor of Brancusi. Uh, they, they make the case, and the judge who knows nothing about art um, has to admit that they've proven their case, and this is his final um, decision the most important part, he says this, there has been developing a so-called new school of art whose exponents attempt to portray abstract ideas rather than to imitate natural objects. Whether or not we are in sympathy with these newer ideas and the schools which represent them, we think the facts of their existence 
and their influence upon the art world as, a recognize, as recognized by the courts must be considered. The object now under consideration is shown to be for purely ornamental purposes, its use being the same as that of any piece of sculpture of the old masters. It is beautiful and asymmetrical and symmetrical in outline, and while some difficulty might be encountered in associating it with a bird, it is nevertheless pleasing to look at and highly ornamental, and as we hold under the evidence that it is the original production of a professional sculptor and is in fact a piece of sculpture and a work of art according to the authorities above referred to, we sustain the protest and find that it is entitled to free entry under paragraph 1704. <laughs> so. Uh, it's a great trial. Uh, the other trial I forgot to mention that's a really great one is the Robert Mapplethorpe in Cincinnati. That's a very, that's a very good one. So here you see this, this, this uh, difficulty in America of accepting, in the 19th century, it was of, 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 of accepting the nude figure. And in the 20th century, it's of upset, uh, accepting uh, abstraction. This is Brancusi's uh, portrait of Agnes Meyer here that we have in the gallery from 1929. And this is a portrait of Agnes Meyer by Charles Despio, a French sculptor, who had already done her portrait the year before in 1928, a traditional bronze uh, portrait here. That's at the Pompidou Center in Paris. When Brancusi saw this, he was uh, friends with, obviously, with Mrs. Meyer. He said to her, quote, I will show you what a portrait of you is really like. Uh, and then he made this. Um, this is a tough sculpture because it, we're not even sure exactly how it's representative. It's just the head, the head, the torso. If you're supposed to read the pedestal as part of the, the length of the figure, it's really, it's really interesting. Uh, Agnes Meyer was uh, a journalist. She was a scholar of Chinese art. She married Eugene Meyer, who of course became the owner of the Washington Post. Um, and those two, the Myers, were very early supporters of Brancusi. Here's what we're talking about, serial forms, changing the materials, changing the approaches. We don't have one of the torsos in our collection, but this is the torso of a young man on the left from 1917. That's in maple, uh, male torso. Down below left is, in, is brass from 1917. The one, the wooden one up here is uh, walnut from 1923, and this is plaster from 1923. Now, these are all uh, partial figures. And the one thing that all 20th century sculptors accept from Rodin, and this is arguably his greatest contribution to 20th century sculpture, is the partial figure. So here you see Rodin's male torso from 1887. And here's Brancusi's male torso. And he may have rejected everything about Rodin. Surfaces, approach, uh, sentimentality, romanticism, uh, realism, everything. But he didn't, he accepted the partial figure. Uh, and that really is Rodin's, one of Rodin's greatest contributions to modern art carried on by Brancusi and others. Mondrian, of course, is part of purity, a uh, very intense part. <laughs> uh, and when one looks at Mondrian, of course, uh, many people just see this, because that's where he ends up. But the question is, how did a guy who started here end up here? Um, and with all of these artists who are have very committed to abstraction, Kandinsky, Mondrian, Brancusi, 
you really do have to see their career in sequence, in chronology. Because only if you follow them step by step can you get into their head and understand why each work is changing something to end up in some place that when you look at it, you would say, well, what the heck, who jumped out of bed that day and decided to do this? Um, so there's a sequence that you have to follow. So this is Mondrian in 1902, truncated view of the Bruckseider Mill on the Gain River, uh, 1902, 1903, and then some 30 years later, 1930, composition in red, yellow, in red, blue, and yellow. Um, we t I mentioned to you a long time ago that uh, in the 20th century, what you start to confront are manifestos. Everybody's writing a manifesto. Now, the exception were Cubists, they didn't have a manifesto. The Fauves didn't have a manifesto. But almost everybody else did. The Futurists did. Blue Rider, through the Blue Rider Almanac, uh, De Bruca, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's true with the movement that is created by Mondrian and his compatriot from Holland, Theo van Dusburg. And it's called either neoplasticism, that's actually the term that Mondrian liked, or de style in Dutch, this, the style. Um, those terms are synonymous. This movement is founded in 1917 and runs to about 1931. It's a Dutch movement. It's based on pure abstraction. Um, but Mondrian is a deeply spiritual man, uh, not in a traditional sense. He comes from a Dutch Calvinist family, but he rejects that Dutch Calvinist background. And he seeks something much more transcendental, more personal, more universal. And the one thing he's interested in in his visual language is to free his visual language from any hint of nationalism, the kind of nationalism that caused the Great War, where everybody was invested in their, their nationality, and it led to this incredible kind of conflagration. So he refines his elements, looking for very simple geometric shapes, lines, the primary colors against the neutral colors, certain ver horizontal vertical intersection. Um, and he sees in these lines and colors cosmic forces. He's much like Kandinsky very spiritual in this particular sense. So for example, vertical lines tend to embody the direction and energy of the sun's rays. Those are celestial. Um, horizontal lines are terrestrial. They're more of the earth. They're of a lower realm. He sees colors, the three primary colors, as having very specific significance. Uh, yellow is the sun, the sun's energy. Blue is infinite space. Red will come forward when you have blue and yellow meeting. This is much like Kandinsky. Colors will change depending on how they're juxtaposed to each other. Now, these movements, surrealism, futurism, the style, um, blue rider, uh, especially constructivism, suprematism in Russia, these are all utopian movements. These are all artists who want to make a perfect world through art. They're utopian. So they think that if we can just take this stuff on the right and through an understanding and an embracing of this kind of abstract art, eventually the world will become like this and we won't need the art anymore. The art will have been the portal or the path to a perfect world. That's why the style especially is a movement across all disciplines, architecture, furniture, interior design, 
you know, the, the Reitveld chair, where actually if you put the chair against the wall, you can't see it <laughs> because it goes against all the other red and white squares that are on the wall. There's this perfect kind of harmony. So all of that is utopian. Now, where was that, some of that coming from? Well, it was coming from some real interesting guys and girls. <laughs> um, this on the right is a photograph of M.H.J. Schrinnenmacher. He's Dutch, and he's a theosophist. Now, I'm going to talk more about theosophy in general, but uh, this is the theosophist most closely associated with Mondrian because, in fact, Mondrian lived near him, went to hear his lectures, and there's clearly a close connection. So Mondrian's belief that abstraction could serve as a kind of universal pictorial language and all of that was in many ways coming from his inculcation with theosophist thought of this individual who had started as a Catholic priest and he develops what he called plastic mathematics or positive mysticism. So the word plastic is very important to Schoenmacher, and that's why eventually Mondrian calls his movement neoplasticism. And it deals with much of what I've already said, this idea that the etern there's an eternal world that can be expressed through opposites, horizontal, vertical, uh, all this kind of uh, cosmic. And he went to the lectures of Schrinmacher. I'm showing you the three most influential texts here by Schrinmacher: Man and Nature from 1913, The New Image of the World from 1915, and Principles of Plastic Mathematics, Plastic Mathematics from 1916 uh, here. Now, if we're creating the great ball team of theosophists, who are we gonna, who are we gonna draft? Here they are. Um, these are, this is the all-star team. Uh, <clears throat> you've got Schoenmacher in Holland, so we don't put up him up here. But we've got Annie Besant. She's English. Uh, she's the great theosophist from England. We've got the theosophist that, in addition to Schoenmacher, Mondrian was totally besotted with. He had a portrait of her in his house. Uh, that's Annie, that's uh, Madame Blavatsky. She's Russian. Helena Blavatsky is here. Then we have the Englishman another great theosophist, Charles Webster Ledbetter. Then we have Rudolf Steiner, who eventually affects American theosophy in New York City. Uh, he's Austrian. And then we have Henry Steele Alcott, who is in fact American. So it's a universal. We got Russians, we got English, we got Dutch, we've got Americans. And at the turn of the century, this the theosophy falls into this whole kind of category of interest in new scientific ideas, electromagnetism, x-ray, um, hypnosis, mesmerism, what else, clairvoyance. All of these things are swirling around. Some of them are science, some of them are pseudoscience, but everybody is seeking this kind of transcendental kind of world. A lot of this is Eastern, coming from Eastern theosophists, Krishnamurti, people like this. So artists are just lapping this stuff up, that there must be a higher, better place than where we have been, especially in the post-war uh, period. And it was a desire to kind of transcend normal human consciousness. So you have it related to things like intuition, meditation, revelation. You know, we have auras, we have chakras, you know, all this kind of stuff. That's very uh, important. Now, here is a photograph of Mondrian. Um, on, on the left. 
and it comes uh, right, right around 1906, 1907. Um, for the longest period of time, we weren't sure what the heck was going on in this photograph. <laughs> uh, but what most art historians thought was that this was Mondrian practicing yoga, because uh, he was very attuned to Eastern philosophy. So that was kind of the general thought. But now we know that's not true. Um, we know who took this photograph now, and we know the, the, um, the background. The photograph was by a German phrenologist. His name was Alfred Waldenberg. Phrenology is the idea that you could tell about a person's character through their, the bumps on their head, the size of their cranium, and all this kind of stuff. So now what we pretty much know here, because this is another thing Mondrian was very deeply involved with, is that um, one of the things that uh, Waldenberg talked about in terms of how you read somebody's skull and cranium was related to the size of their hands. So you'd have to put your hands, you know, like this. Uh, and that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. He's visiting Waldenberg, the phrenologist, who actually takes this photograph of Mondrian in this particular um, guide, in this particular guise. Now, this book is by Annie Besant and Ledbetter. I don't know how many of you saw. We did a very small show, I don't know, a year or two years ago on Edvard Munch. Uh, and we dealt with some of this through Munch. Um, this is a very important book called Thought Forms uh, by Annie Besant. And uh, Thought Forms is a theosophical text that everybody read, uh, at least artists did. And it was more specifically related to the relationship of color to, to meaning and to spirituality. So um, in fact, in that show, we even had a chart that showed you the different colors that meant you were this or that. Um, so this is, again, part of theosophy, that there are auras of color that are around us, and that if my color merges with your color, uh, then, you know, in Munch, you see this agitation a lot around figures. It looks like they're being electrocuted. Uh, that's also electromagnetism, all these things. So that's part of what Mondrian was absorbing here. Here's uh, the great Mondrian that we have, and this is a very important one. Um, it's the first time he shifts the canvas to the diamond to the point instead of having it square. This is tableau number four, lozenge composition with red, gray, blue, yellow, and black. That's the title. <laughs> Uh, this is 1924-25 that we have here. And this is Mondrian in his studio in 1933 with two other important paintings. Here's a similar diamond shape. Ours is earlier. This is the earliest one. But this is lozenge. We can tell what this is. It's lozenge composition with four yellow lines from 1933. And then we know what that painting is. It's composition with double lines in yellow from 1934. Mondrian's easy, and my students would always guess. I said, if you don't know the title, just say composition in red, yellow, and blue, <laughs> and I'll probably give you a few points. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it's not like you've got to remember some surrealist title. you know. Um, <clears throat> so Mondrian intended that his paintings expressed a, a spiritual notion of these universal harmonies. So the horizontal vertical intersection is important, the primary colors, the uh, neutrals, black, white, and gray. Uh, all of these things come from a sort of theosophical uh, background. Now, what's different here is shifting it to the point. And when you do that, there's a, but you notice he doesn't change the, the rectilinear nature of this. 
There are no diagonals. My God, I'd shoot myself if I had a diagonal. Uh, there are no diagonals, right? He just shifts the support. And as soon as he called this cutting, I'm cutting it now. Um, and by doing that, of course, what it reinforces is this idea that this is a never-ending composition that can extend to infinity. Top, bottom, left, right, it can just never end. It can affect the environment, that idea. Now, the diagonal, I joke about it, but this is the reason Van Dusburg and Mondrian actually fall out. You know, we have these very famous encounters where people, I've had enough. These guys are so close, they, they create this movement, they talk each day, they're incredibly uh, on the same page. And then Van Dusburg creates a composition one day where he has it square, but he has a diagonal. Uh, he moves all the colors so they're diagonal, but it's in a square format. End of friendship. <laughs> they, they never talk to each other again. <clears throat> they have this huge falling out. Mondrian says, OK, we're done. Uh, this is not what neoplasticism is. Uh, you want to go off and have diagonals? Great, go have your own movement. Uh, knock yourself out, but you're not part of this movement anymore. Um, now, again, I'm conflating two rooms. But in that purest room is this painting on the left by an artist who doesn't get his uh, share of uh, credit, Amadie Ozenfant. Um, and this is still life with carafe, bottle, and guitar from 1919. Ozenfant uh, forms a movement with the great Swiss architect Le Corbusier. And here's Ozenfant, and this is Corbusier, and this is Corbusier's brother, uh, Albert. Um, this is in Switzerland in 1918, this photograph. Uh, Ozenfant is essentially a French cubist. He starts off it, with cubism. Um, but when he connects with Le Corbusier, uh, who's an architect but also a painter, I might add, they are looking for something pure. Cubism is a little bit too decorative. It doesn't really, in the case of Mondrian, cubism didn't go far enough. It stopped short of the purity he was looking for, the spirituality. In the case of Ozenfant and Corbusier, it's again, it's something that's too too decorative in a certain way. But you know, I say that, but here's what you have to keep in mind. All of this is still about cubism, in the sense that cubism is the parent of all these these movements may reject cubism, but it's still about cubism. <laughs> You know, they're just going, well, I don't like that. I didn't like that. They didn't go far enough. It was too decorative. Didn't have enough color. You know, and then you'll see these sort of offshoots. So cubism is the parent of most 20th century abstract art forms, even into surrealism. OK, so purism, we got to have a manifesto. If not a manifesto, then we have to have a book. And uh, Ozenfant and Corbusier write the book called After Cubism. It's published in 1917. And they've coined the term for their movement, purism, now with a capital P, purism. And it's a movement that is desirous of stripping away a lot of non-essential decorative elements in painting to get down to a more architectural, structural kind of feeling, um, powerful forms, especially associated with architecture, so that you look at bottles and they look like the fluting on a Greek column. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of classicism uh, uh, that they both are seeking. It also, believe it or not, it goes that way, but it also embraces technology, the machine, mechanization, mm -hmm. 
clean, tubular, sort of mechanized looking uh, forms very often. The other artist who will become part of purism is Leger. So Ozenfant, Corbusier, and Leger are the three great sort of founding figures in some way of um, purism. So here's what Ozenfant said. When they use color, they're using color to build form. It's not just a riot of color like fauvism that's more emotional. It's very strictly monitored. So Ozenfant says, um, quote, we affirm that art must tend always to precision and that the epoch of every sort of impressionism was done with, even such as remained in cubism. So they're linking cubism still to the, to the past. Um, we laid down the foundations for a purism that would bring order into the aesthetic imbroglio and inoculate artists with the new spirit of age misapprehended by so many of them. See, nobody's getting what the 20th century is about, according to these guys. Um, so Leger is one of the great exponents of purism. Uh, we have two magnificent Legers. Uh, I don't know if they're both up right now. I think only one is. This is an animated landscape from 1921, two women from 1922. Arguably, you could say that after Picasso and Matisse, Leger is the dominant French painter of the 20th century. I, I, don't, I wouldn't argue with that. He's very important, at least in French painting. He creates the, he's a big part of purism. He creates these clean, mechanized, tubular, mechanical-looking kinds of uh, forms. Everything is very ordered. It has a certain social connotation about you know, what's being portrayed in terms of the subject matter. It's a kind of view of the urban world uh, and of the new sort of machine age, what he sees as a very positive kind of idea. Uh, it certainly is based on cubism. It's based on cubism. There's no question about that. But it's just as much based on other things. He's looking at the primitivism of Henri Rousseau. He certainly is aware of Mondrian, neoplasticism. His color choice very often resides within the three basic primary colors with the black and white. So there's very often a Mondrian kind of feeling of order. Um, uh, all of this is very much, uh, here we have two figures in both cases. This is a mother and child here. These are two guys. And it's all, this is a sort of suburban setting. This is um, an interior. So he's giving you these two different worlds. The funny thing here is this bull. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do with Picasso, to tell you the truth. But uh, it, it might very well. But it's, a, it's, a more, it's almost a humorous note uh, in the painting, which does, in fact, bring us to Picasso briefly in that same room. Because in that room, you have a Picasso painting. It's not a painting. It's a collage uh, that's very intriguing. It's hard to think about it. It's hard to really understand it. It's this one here. And this is guitar, uh, guitar, 1926. Uh, it's a collage. It has wallpaper, carpet tacks, nail, a nail, uh, paper, string, and charcoal on wood. This is 1926. This is one of the most famous synthetic cubist works in Western art. It's 1912. This is Picasso's guitar, sheet music, and wine glass from 1912. Today, this is in Texas, in San Antonio, uh, here. This is considered by many, this, this collage here, um, to, to be the first self-consciously modern work that used newspaper down here. 
Um, so that starts this whole synthetic cubist sort of collage effect. Um, this, um, uh, I, well, I told you it, uh, this was charcoal, gouache, and pasted paper. This is really the beginning, and this is the end. Uh, the reason this work is important is because it's Picasso in some ways bidding farewell to synthetic cubism, uh, to this whole tradition, to papier collet that Brock was so instrumental in developing. So he gets down to now he's paring down. The reason this could hang in a purist room is because he's really winnowing down to the essence of things. Although in this work, this is a very strange work that's been written about because it's almost aggressive to the viewer. It has tacks coming out, like you could cut yourself or prick your finger. Uh, and there are a number of works at this time where Picasso is creating works that they, they seem hostile to the viewer in a certain surrealist way. Um, so that's talked about a lot in, in, different, in different ways. The work is 1926. Picasso's never a surrealist, but he certainly relates and knows about it. Remember, the Surrealist Manifesto was 1924. And Picasso does start to think about a lot of ideas in surrealism. And certainly one of them is hostility to the viewer. Uh, like in, in surrealist film, you know, you cut your eyeball, that's pretty hostile. Uh, when she's looking right at the screen, then a razor blade comes across her eye, uh, that idea. Now, I conflated abstraction with purity. <clears throat> so this is the other room. <clears throat> Birth of abstraction, we call it. And here we come back to Kandinsky. Now, we already embraced Kandinsky with Blue Rider, German Expressionism. This is improvisation number 31, subtitled Sea Battle. <clears throat> this is a photograph of Kandinsky from 1900. We've talked about Blue Rider, but of course, Kandinsky is a pivotal figure in 20th century modernism because he too, by the way, Brancusi, Mondrian, Kandinsky are all theosophists. Uh, they all follow theosophy, and we know that they all read Madame Blavatsky, she's even Russian, uh, and uh, the various theosophists. So when you see Brancusi, and you see, like I said, a wooden pedestal, a marble cube in a, bra in a brass or bronze, it's this theosophical sort of affirmation of spirituality on the vertical, uh, things like that. For Kandinsky and Mondrian, it's how specific colors evoke certain states of mind, etc. And what you begin to get here, especially in the most important text of the 20th century by one of the most important aesthetic texts, that's Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual in Art. It's actually subtitled, um, <clears throat> especially in painting from 1911. This is one of the chapters that deals with movement. <clears throat> so in the Concerning the Spiritual Art in Art from 1911, Kandinsky lays out his theory of, of painting and of art, and he stresses the importance of abstraction he talks about works, they have two different parts. They have an inner necessity, they have their own inner core, and then they have this outer visual. And then what allows us to, to broach those two things um, is the spiritual impulse to try to bro broach the actual physical work, but then to unlock its spiritual nature. And the, and the way of doing that is through an understanding of color, shape, and all of this freed, freed, from having to just respond to nature. So this is, again, tied directly also to Kandinsky's love of music, his friendship with Arnold Schoenberg. And he starts to title works, as we already had back here, 
with titles like improvisation, composition, uh, impression. These are all musical terms. And he wants his works to be seen in this particular way. There's a difference between the improvisations and the compositions. The improvisations are a bit more spontaneous than the compositions, which are a little bit more thought out. But once you learn how to read Kandinsky, it literally is like reading a language. It's, they're hieroglyphs. So once you know what the, you're looking for, these are waves. These are boats. These are cannons. They're exploding. This is where the battle is taking place. This ship is fighting this ship. These are cannons. You've got onion domes. You've got cities. You've got little ghost figures. There's a whole, I mean, I could map it out like hieroglyphs. And as soon as you know those forms, waves, ghosts, boats, cannons, uh, you can get into the work and begin to see that they have, they're abstract, but they have a kind of universal, very often apocalyptic concept. The, the great flood, the deluge, uh, apocalyptic kinds of scenes. The great one that's in Chicago is the one that's subtitled Cannons. You've got these forms that are blowing out sort of across the canvas. And when Kandinsky was asked about that, that's 1913, the same year, he said, you know, I didn't intend to, to, to draw cannons. <laughs> he said, that was not my intention. He said, but he goes, certainly the talk of war was so prominent and all everything was war and war and war. But when I looked at this composition, I just felt I needed something heavy down here. I needed a form that was heavy, um, like a bass note. I needed a bass note. Um, uh, and that's how this form comes about. So Schoenberg, remember Schoenberg even exhibits with Blue Rider because uh, he's a very skilled amateur uh, uh, painter. So it's like composers abandoning the major minor scale. <laughs> You know, that just locks us into a certain set of relationships. Whereas if you go with Schoenberg and Webern and Berg to the 12-tone scale, 12, then it's, it just opens everything up. So what Kandinsky is saying in some ways is why can't I just do what a composer does? Why can't I just put color against color, shape against shape, the way a composer puts note against note? Um, this relates to ideas of synesthesia. Uh, Kandinsky was probably a synesthete. Other people in history, David Hockney is a synesthete. Uh, Franz Liszt was a synesthete, which is to say that these are people who could hear color uh, or, or in color see, hear sound, that kind of thing. When Franz Liszt used to conduct, he would tell the orchestra, I'm sorry, it's got to be more purple. <laughs> you know, and then they had, what the hell does that mean? Because uh, he could hear purple. It had to be more purple. Um, so synesthesia is a major concept here throughout the early 20th century. It affects even later American abstract expressionist painting, the relationship of the abstract expressionist to jazz and other forms of music. Now, there is another offshoot of Cubism, and uh, we have it represented in the gallery. Not always, the works are not always up. But these are two works by the Delaunays, Sonia Delaunay, her full name, if using her husband's name, and then her own name, Sonia Delaunay Turk, T-E-R-K, from 1914, called Solar Prism. And Robert, her husband, Robert Delaunay, political drama from 1914. These are among the founders of another, yet another offshoot of traditional Cubism called Orphic Cubism, Orphism, O-R-P-H-I-C, Orphic Orphism which is a term that's coined by the poet Apollinaire in 1912, 
so again, it has a firm, he creates this whole sort of literature about it. It's related to Cubism, certainly. It's an offshoot, but it's more focused on pure, bright color and abstraction. The biggest thing about Orphism is it invests Cubist language with greater and greater color and abstraction. They go back and they're interested in all those French theorists of color going back to the time of Delacroix, the 19th century, Chevreul, people like that. They go back and reread even more recent, Paul Signac. The Delanais are, are, are pivotal in the development of Orphism. Uh, and also the Czech artist Kupka, that we'll talk about in a, in a second. They're both very, very uh, important. And here again, they were firm believers that painting should reflect music, that it should exist on a kind of synesthetic sort of level. So these are works by the Delanais. Here is Lionel Fenninger, who's part of this group on the left. The Bicycle Race from 1912. And Frantis Kupka, one of the original founders of the movement, who's Czech, uh, this painting on the right is called Localization of Graphic Motifs. Localization of Graphic Motifs number two, also from 1912. Notice the dates, 1912. So we have the same idea, like with surrealism, or you know, somebody writes, this is what painting should be, and then the guy's, okay, I'll try to create paintings that reflect your philosophy, and it's really Apollinaire who's talking about this. Uh, Kupka, also the other thing that this shows, Kupka is Czech, uh, Fenninger is German-American, uh, the Dalinais are French, is the, uh, the universality of this. It cuts across a lot of national boundaries and borders. Kupka is very important. He's uh, one of the co-founders of Orphism. Um, he's had a direct influence on Delaunay, so he's dealing with a lot of this even before Delaunay. He's very impressed, Kupka is, and you can sense it here, by the futurists in Italy. When he reads the first, the Futurist Manifesto in 1909, he's blown away by this advocation about speed and motion. Uh, and so you can see he starts to create these vortex-like images. Uh, they become increasingly abstract, but again, they're full of color, prismatic color. They have motion, color, uh, a strong, again, often relationship to music. Fenninger um, is also, this bike race here, uh, indebted to the futurists. One of the things the futurists often showed was people racing bikes, the sense of speed and the revolution of the wheels and the after images. Anything that could move, the futurists started, there's a great one of a little dachshund who's kind of running and he's creating all these little after movements because he's going so quickly across this, you know, this uh, ground, he's on a leash. Um, so that's what you're seeing here, this conflation of how motion now uh, can be visualized in a certain way. Fenninger, of course, he, he's actually born in America. He's born in New York, but he comes from a German-American family. He goes to Germany very early at the age of 16. He studies in Germany. He's actually associated with, he hangs, for example, if you go back to the Salzman collection, there's a Fenninger in there because he is part of uh, Debrucke and Blue Rider at different times of his career. The Nazis come to power in 1933. His work is declared degenerate uh, in that sense, but he has the good sense to, to leave Germany. Uh, he was declared degenerate in a kind of a tune-up exhibition, what the uh, Nazis used to call shaming exhibitions, and one took place in 1936. After that, he and his wife decided it's time to get out of Germany, and they left. And then he was included in the 1937, the big degenerate art show. 
but again, he's German American. Um, okay, uh, I think that's good for abstraction purity. Next time we're going to talk about, I think, abstract expressionism, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, thanks very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.